Peace and blessings be upon you. Welcome to the Ta'lif Podcast, a space where we aim to provide content and connect our spiritual hearts with community, love, service, and prophetic wisdom. In the name of God, the Beneficent, the Merciful, um, we begin by invoking prayers and uh, sending benedictions of peace to the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And um, uh, it's a great honor, a great privilege to be with all of you. Uh, this is a space that, you know, mashallah, we've held consistently now for, I don't know, it's been a couple years, I it think, has. even, yeah. mashallah. Um, this session is dedicated to community conversations around diseases of the heart. So those inner, interior maladies, sicknesses, illnesses that sometimes operate uh, imperceptibly. We can't always perceive them, uh, but we know that they're there. And uh, one of the great benefits of community is being able to look at others and thereby uh, have a mirror of sorts, to assess yourself, to evaluate yourself. Um, tonight, I have the honor of conversing with a good friend of mine, mashallah, someone that I've known for, wow, many years. You know, when guys can say, I've known you for many years, that means we're getting old. Yeah. <laughs> you know, someone that I've had the, the honor of knowing for many years and um, really excited to be in conversation with tonight. Dr. Will Caldwell, how are you, sir? Alhamdulillah, doing well. Glad to be here. I think it's been 10 years. 10? I arrived in Chicago in 2011. Okay, mashallah. I, 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 met you, I met you shortly after, because you arrived from New York. Yeah. Mashallah. And you were just beginning, I think, your master's at Northwestern. My PhD. Your PhD yeah. at Northwestern. Mashallah. And look, 10 years later, here you we have are. Two, two children, <laughs> married for at least eight of those years, right? That's right. Yeah. MashaAllah. Wow. Time flies when you're having fun. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. So the topic of uh, discussion tonight is miserliness. Uh, the Arabic term is bukhal, to be a miser, to be someone that uh, is reluctant to spend even on those causes that are worthy of your mm. contribution or generosity. You know, the miser will even neglect his or her responsibilities because of some unhealthy attachment uh, to money or worldly things, et cetera. What are some of your initial impressions when you hear the term miserliness or niggardliness, right? Which is uh, an outmoded term. No one uses that term anymore, but they have the same meaning, right? This, a person that's miserly. What are some of your initial thoughts? Well, the first, my mind first jumped to the cure when I was, uh, you know, reading the chapter on miserliness tonight. And one which he didn't mention, which I thought was pretty apparent, is just have kids. They, <laughs> they take all your stuff. And it's like, <laughs> it's just an immediate cure. You have to, you have to be open-handed yeah. with your kids. Um, I, I cooked dinner for my kids last night. Um, because my, my wife wasn't feeling well, she was laying down. And um, I made liver. 
And believe it or not, my kids actually like liver. Subhanallah. Yeah. Um, so when I, they become phenomenal adults, I'll be able to tell them you were phenomenal children. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm impressed. Uh, I, I'm really amazed. <laughs> but I cooked a pound of liver and my oldest son wouldn't stop eating. Like he, he, I think he probably had three quarters of all of the liver that I cooked. Really? And I actually left the table hungry because, <laughs> I mean, I was very pleased that he was eating, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes he doesn't. And it's like, well, you know, it's a struggle to get him to eat a full meal. Um, but he was eating this up and I actually was not satisfied when I left the table with like, my stomach was not satisfied. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was so happy, you know, in that moment, just getting to watch him eat that I let him do it. I kept serving him, kept cutting it up. He would eat it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, th that was the time when it was easy, but sometimes like I'll make breakfast for myself after they've had breakfast. Mm -hmm. And then, like, they'll come and, like, literally crawl on my lap and just start eating out of my plate. Mashallah. And, you know, it, it's like, you, you can't be miserly with, with your children. Well, you can. You, you, well, you can't, but you can't. You yeah. know, one of the, the most famous hadith of the Prophet, والسلام, that we see um, related to the topic or theme of miserliness mm -hmm. is the famous hadith of Hind ibn Utbah. Right now, Hind was married to Abu Sufyan, mm -hmm. and Abu Sufyan was a wealthy man. You know, you'll find that most people that suffer from miserliness, they are not poor people. Often, they are people that have experienced great upward mobility in their lives, that they used to be poor, and now there's been a change of fortune, mm -hmm. right? But they still carry with them the trauma or the scars or the experience of having been without. So often the idea becomes, you never know when you might need this or that thing. So the same thing that drives miserliness, it drives hoarding. Mm -hmm. People that because of previous insecurity, they feel like, look, whatever you have, hold on to it because you never know when you might need it. So Abu Sufyan was actually very wealthy, but he did not spend any money, even on his family, even on his wife, even on his children. He would not give them what he was responsible for giving them. And Hind, and this is after, of course, the Fath of Mecca, she came to the Prophet ﷺ, and she was wearing a face veil, and she did not normally veil her face. But commentators say she was wearing a face veil because she did not want to embarrass her husband, mm -hmm. right? And there's a, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot that is instructive about this. She knew that she wanted to ask the Prophet a question about miserliness, but she knew that this was sensitive. She knew this could potentially embarrass Abu Sufyan. So she veiled herself and she said, Ya Rasulullah, O Messenger of God, what if you're married to someone that is so stingy, they don't give you what they're obligated to give you, what they're obliged to give you? And it's interesting, the Prophet, he said to her, Are you Hind? 
<laughs> kind of in a sense, exposing him, right? In a sense, right? But the intention of the Prophet ﷺ, many commentators say, was not to expose him. Like, are you Hind, the wife of Abu Sufyan? He wanted to make sure that the person asking was married to someone that had sufficient means. Mm. I mean, that what we were seeing was in fact miserliness and not poverty mm -hmm. because they're not the same thing. So once he established, are you Hind? And she said, yes, I'm Hind. The Prophet ﷺ, take from his wealth, according to what is customarily regarded as uh, reasonable, mm -hmm. right? So the Prophet ﷺ gave her permission to take her husband's uh, money without his knowledge, but he told her to do so according to what is reasonable, right? So the proof in this hadith though, to what you said is that a person can be a miser even toward their own family even toward their own children, someone might still have this reluctance to give. Yeah, and you know, certainly there, there are people like that. However, I, I think if anything was to sort of like snatch you out of miserliness, it would be like the, you know, children are so like just unassuming in their wants, like they want what they want and there's not, they don't hide it, they wear it on their sleeve. And if anything were to sort of like soften your heart to that, it seems that it would be one's own children. Of course. You know? Of course. Um, but uh, yeah, you, you know, that, that's where my mind went immediately was, was that relationship because that seems to be the one that, you know, opens hearts uh, mm -hmm. the most easily. Uh, and then from there, uh, maybe it becomes a little easier in other parts of your life as well. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, and it's funny, I did not know we would be discussing miserliness this week because I mentioned this last week. Um, you know, in Surah Al-Layl, Allah Ta'ala talks about a kind of person that he describes, bakhila wastaghna. This is, you know, these are the verses of the Quran that, and I mentioned this last week, so forgive my, my being redundant or repetitive. Um, but these are the verses of the Qur'an that reveal such a deep and penetrating insight into the human condition mm -hmm. that when reading them, you realize immediately this book is from the creator of human beings. Right? Bakhila wastaghna. So bakhila means the person is stingy. The person is withholding. No, you can't have any. But then Allah mentions Part of that tendency, or perhaps the essence of that tendency, wastaghna, they deem themselves self-sufficient. Istighna, mm -hmm. that the only person that is reluctant to give is someone that believes that they only have themselves to rely upon. You see, this is on me. I am responsible for making sure I am secure. So I have to make sure I have what I need. And the cure is tawakkul. If you recognize that I rely upon God, everything I have, God has given me. And if I have a need, God will furnish that need. It's much easier to give. Mm -hmm. You know, notice that 
if we recognize all of the ways in which God has given to us through our relationships, through our skills, through our abilities, through our opportunities. I mean, subhanAllah, um, you know, this past weekend, I was in Detroit for a fundraiser. And um, one of the speakers who spoke after me was talking about how this almost obsessive belief in meritocracy, right? As Americans, we believe that what an individual has is the result of some merit, right? She has what she earned, he has what he earned. Mm -hmm. When you believe that to an excessive degree, it's hard for you to see the test in what you have been given. Mm -hmm. That even though you might be in possession of great disposable income or great wealth or great ability, it doesn't mean you're deserving of that. In fact, some of the hardest working people I know are the poorest people that I know. This is true. So the fact that you have disposable income or you have wealth or you have money or it's because God has given you those things to test you in how you will use those things, right? When you recognize that, it's very easy to give. It's very easy to give. If someone asks of me, you know, in fact, I love the expression paying it forward, right? This was given to me. It's very easy for me to give it to someone else. But if I believe I got it on my own, no one helped me. And if I end up with a need, it will be me that has to take care of myself. You're always going to be withholding. In fact, I'll say this and I'll give you some space to... Um, you know, to add or rebut or as sure. you as you like. If you believe too um, fervently in ideas of meritocracy, that what I have, I have because of my merit, my skills, my ability, my work ethic, etc., you can even become contemptuous of people who don't have. Yeah. So that when you see someone that has a need, you think. What are you, lazy? What are you, are you irresponsible? Did you misuse your time? Are you on drugs? Are you mentally unstable? Are you, you have all of these ill opinions of people that have needs. But if you recognize, no, I was someone with a need that God furnished my need, then you tend not to approach other people that have needs in that way. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think the, there's something about it, though, that, that goes beyond just this sincere belief in, in meritocracy. The, there's this um, Twitter personality that I, I read. His name's Naval, and he, he talks about money quite a bit. He's, he's very wealthy himself. And one of well, the at least Twitter will have you believe so. <laughs> no, he is indeed. He, uh, I mean, he's uh, a philanthropist. He, he's uh, an investor. And one of the things that initially impressed me about him was that he said, you know, if I lost everything, um, I have confidence that I'll regain it all back. Um, and he was saying it from this sort of like meritocratic belief in himself. He's like, mm -hmm. I, I have the skills to go out there and make money. And I don't, I don't need to rely on the money that I have. I'll go out and make more. And that, that sort of 
challenged my own understanding of uh, you know what wealth does to people because I mean you do see wealth turning people into misers. It does happen. It seems to be the rule. In fact, most of the time, especially as you mentioned, when people really come up, mm -hmm. right? Um, but there, I think there's another element that really leads to miserliness, which is fear. Um, right? Like it, it's fear. It's like, yeah, I, I got this. And uh, I'm afraid that I'm going to lose it. Allah says, uh, I, the name of the surah escapes me, but he says that, uh, mm -hmm. that they, he, he reasons that his, his mm -hmm. uh, money will make him immortal. Humaza. Yeah. Sort of humaza. Yeah. No. Um, and it, it's, it's almost like the, it's completely irrational, but you, you can kind of see it. Like if you, if you sort of take that snippet of wisdom, and you watch miserly wealthy people, they do act that way. Mm. Like they, they really think that what they have is almost going to like allow them to exist into perpetuity. Mm. And, and it's this fear that like, no, I'm gonna die like everyone else. And ultimately this is going to do absolutely nothing for me, all of this wealth that I've accumulated. Mm -hmm. But there's this fearful delusion that, that's involved that I think really like for me, like that captures the essence of it. Like Sheikh Hamza mentions in the, the commentary on this book that um, misers are not happy people, <clears throat> right? They, they live in a state of anxiety. Mm -hmm. And th this, was, this is funny. It's also beautiful. You know, he says the, the, the word for constipation is in Arabic is related to the word for, uh, I think he said for pure gold. Mm -hmm. Meaning like the, this idea that wealth, if you hold on to it, actually makes you incredibly anxious because you, you wow. develop this fear. Like you're, you're holding on to something that's actually making you sick. And sorry for like the sort of gross analogy. Right? But, um, but it, it's in the letting go of that wealth and being open-handed with people that your, your wealth actually benefits from you. your income actually becomes purified but also you let go of that fear you know you let go of that anxiety you know it's interesting that when we think about unhealthy attachment with money we often think about uh over consuming how much we spend 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 being spendthrifts mm -hmm. right israf but we, we really think that an unhealthy attachment with money can also be expressed in a fear of letting go, a fear of spending, right? People that um, are reluctant to even take care of their own responsibilities because there's this overriding fear that, you know, I, I, mean, I mean, what will happen in the future? I mean, what, what, I mean what if I need this? Right, and I, I I think you know going back to something that uh, Naval said, um, even though he based that confidence on his ability, on his aptitude, on his capacity, it still is a very strong statement about a kind of tafaul or a kind of optimism mm -hmm. that even if I were to lose this, I could get it again, right? Um, one of the, the uh, words used for a miser is the khasir al-darain, the loser of the two abodes. Hmm. 
Right? We know that a person that doesn't spend for the sake of God will lose in the hereafter. Mm -hmm. But that person is even a loser in the life of this world because they don't benefit from their money there or here. Subhanallah. Yeah. Yeah. And when it comes to, you know, the cure for this, I, I think anyone who has ever been in a position of poverty, right, like that, that is enough of a cure for miserliness. Because, I, I mean, look, I was a, a grad student for like over a decade, which is a state of poverty for, you know, if anyone is familiar with it, <laughs> right? It's not fun to like be at a restaurant with your friends and not be able to re reach for the bill. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I couldn't do that for like a decade, mm. right? And I, I, I used to like just, you know, think like, man, I can't wait until I start making some actual money so that I can like take my friends out for a nice dinner, Inshallah. right? Like it actually feels good. Like you enjoy this life when you can spend your money on things that make you happy and make your friends happy and make the people that you love happy. Mm -hmm. Right. It feels good. Mm -hmm. It actually it, it's anxiety inducing. It's uh, it, it feels constricting not to be able to do that. Yes. Right. So, I mean, just you know, taste a little poverty and, you know, you'll you'll realize like, no, it's, spending is actually uh, it's I mean, it's fun. And some people have a little too much fun with it. <laughs> but, you know, being able to do it appropriately, like that's a good feeling. You're, you're taking care of those around. you. Mashallah. You know, my grandmother. Uh, Allah may Allah have mercy on her soul. You know, she would always say, never complain about the, uh, the expenses that you have to uh, take care of. Just thank God that you had the resources to take care of those expenses. Mm. Right? Sometimes, even when we have the money to do what is necessary, we complain about what is necessary. Yeah. That's a kind of miserliness. It's like, no one wants their car to get a flat tire or nobody wants their child to go to the ER or nobody wants their furnace to go out in the winter time. Mm -hmm. But thank God you had what you needed to take care of it. Instead of saying, oh my God, to get this guy to come out and fix the furnace is going to be $800. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just thank God that you actually had what you needed so that you could do what was necessary. Yeah. You know, subhanAllah. Well. He begins, he says, now then, the refusal to give what is obliged according to sacred law or to virtuous merit is the essence of miserliness, which is mentioned among the diseases of the heart. The refusal to give what is obliged. I find that concept to be sorely lacking, I think, in kind of American popular culture, that there is money in our possession that is earmarked, earmarked by God mm -hmm. for other people. This is a, it's not something you give out of the goodness of your heart. This is something you give just to acquit yourself as a morally decent human being. You know, one of my teachers told me, you know, when we talk about the five pillars of Islam, and zakat is one of those, we're not talking about exhausting the moral possibility of the human being, right? That's the sunnah. The sunnah of the Prophet, then you're talking about exhausting the moral potential of the human being. The fara'id, the obligations, this is what you do just to acquit yourself 
as a decent human being so that some of the money in your pocket, some of the money in your savings, this is haq lisa'ili wal mahroom, as it said in the Quran, for the one that asks and for the one that's prevented from asking, that you recognize it as their right. This is not something that I'm giving you out of the goodness of my heart. That's sadaqah, right? That non-obligatory charity. This is something I'm giving you, you know, because I want to get closer to God or I love you, I care about you. I want to express that love, that, that consideration, that devotion to you, our friendship, our brotherhood, our sisterhood. But zakah, this is an obligation. This is, I have to do this. I cannot choose not to do this. And that sense of duty, it's very rare to hear, hear people talk about charity in that, you know, in that register. And I think that is one of the, the shortcomings of that really, really deep belief in meritocracy that you mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. Because in that sort of worldview, we're all just individuals, mm -hmm. right? I earned what I earned. You've got to go out and earn what you earned. There is no sense of obligation that I have to you. What's interesting, I, I, I think, you know, there's always an element of hypocrisy in, in, in something like this. And, and I wonder, you know, as much as people hate paying their taxes, mm -hmm. right? Do they feel the same sort of rancor in their heart towards the IRS, like the, for the miser? Well, tea parties, they do. The tea party? <laughs> yes. In what's, what, what do you explain? In, in, in the sense that I, they're notoriously anti-taxation. Anti yeah, well, I mean, look, I'm not pro-taxation. I'm not saying, like, in fact, you know, uh, I once heard Sheikh Hamza say that uh, income tax is haram. Right, because what it's doing is it's taxing your income, right? Ra rather than your stored wealth, it's taxing mm -hmm. your income. Pay your which, taxes, people. Which Pay you your may taxes. need. Yeah, I'm not saying. Look, we also don't put ourselves into jeopardy. So, look, don't don't take this the wrong way. I'm not saying uh, do a tax revolt or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But to judge by the standards of our sacred law, sure, income tax is haram yeah. because you're taxing something that people may need to pay for their day-to-day -day lives. Sure. Right. Um, but, you know, for your average American, right, uh, especially one who has miserly tendencies, I wonder if they feel that to the same degree when it comes to paying their taxes, mm -hmm. some distant bureaucracy without a face that they may not even know, rather than, you know, your mm. neighbor down the street mm. who you do know, and you may actually know oh, their needs rather intimately. Right. That, that's Doesn't an amazing that... parallel, man. That's an amazing parallel that a distant, faceless bureaucracy whose tax we pay in a spirit of responsibility and duty. Yeah. This, this is owed to you. No one blinks an eye when they receive their check and the taxes are already taken out. Mm -hmm. Or when you're a 1099 like me and you have to write that check at, at the end of tax season. We don't, this is something, this is, this is, this is, this is like an obligation. Yeah. I have to do this. But when it comes to giving, it's like, you know, we, you know, we, we, oh man, I mean, I really, do I have to? Yeah. I mean, can't you work like everybody else? I mean, why are you asking me? Yeah. You must just think I'm made of money, huh? All of these are excuses I've actually heard before. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, and then imagine yourself like writing a letter to the IRS saying those things. Right? Like, you, would, you, wouldn't you wouldn't do, do it. it. <laughs> you wouldn't do it. 
you wouldn't do it, subhanAllah. Very good, very good. Um, but I like how he distinguishes between the obligations of sacred law and virtuous merit. Mm -hmm. Meaning there are forms of giving that are not obligatory by the standards of Sharia, but no self-respecting person would not give in those circumstances. Yeah. Right? Like, and I think the ones that he mentions, again, it's like it ought to feel good to give in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. And if you want to be completely selfish about it, right, it makes you look good. Yeah. Right? It like does. To, to be generous with guests who visit your home. Of course. Right? Like, we all have been hosted in a place where the, the host is just abundantly giving and they make you feel great, but you also leave just thinking, like, wow, I mean, this, this family's amazing. Like, they, you know, like, they went all out for me. Okay. Like it, why wouldn't you want that for yourself? Nothing impresses more than hospitality and generosity. You know, my first uh, speaking engagement outside of Chicago, I was invited to Florida to give a lecture by a friend of mine who was completing his residency in Chicago, Syrian family. And I went to their home and I just remember being just blown away by the hospitality, mm -hmm. by the generosity, by the consideration. And in addition to praying for them abundantly, I remember thinking as I boarded my return flight, dang, that's what it looks like when you really have money. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Wow, that's what it looks like when you really have money. And that made more of an impression upon me than any uh, of the decor in the home or the size or the, the style of the home or the automobiles they owned or the jewelry that some members of the family wore. Generosity, if a person was being completely selfish and insincere about it, mm -hmm. it actually makes you look good. And conversely, selfishness, stinginess really makes you look bad. Yeah. Right. And of course, in Urdu, they say kanjus. To be a kanjus guy. It really, it really makes you look bad, you know. Um, Syrians uh, are on another level. Yes, I, they're, 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 they're known for that. I mean, mashallah, honestly, I did not, and this is, you know, we spend a lot of time bashing the Muslims. Right? We spend a lot of time bashing the Muslims. But I'll say, as someone that converted to Islam and entered this community as a teenager, I had never seen generosity, like what I encountered after becoming Muslim. It's true, yeah. You know, I'd never seen anything like that in my life. I remember attending a fundraiser and seeing somebody give away $100,000. It was like, uh, you know, and he was trying to be very discreet about it. I completely blew his cover. I was sitting next to him and I saw him writing a check and I said, SubhanAllah! <laughs> Because <laughs> I had never, just given my background, I had never seen anything like that. So, um, and he was a Muslim of, of, of um, uh, Pakistani descent. Mm -hmm. you know, so I've seen great acts of charity from 
uh, you know, Muslims of different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, but the one thing that I think binds all of them is that if you ask them, you know, this prosperity that you enjoy, what's the, what's the secret? Almost all of them will say giving, mm -hmm. giving. Al-mal la yankus mina sadaqa. That wealth that is given for the sake of God does not decrease. Wealth does not decrease from giving. And these are people that have come to believe that. And they act as though they believe it. You know? Yeah. Yeah, you know, being someone from the South, which is a, a culture that kind of prides itself on mm -hmm. hospitality, generosity, um, I... I was blown away when I entered this religion by the hospitality oh, yes. of, of, of many Muslims. And I had the, the privilege to live in Syria for a year before the war. And I, it was like, I felt inadequate. You know? sure. oh, yes. wow. <laughs> my, my landlady, who was not a wealthy person by, by any stretch of the imagination, like there was once every two weeks that she would just have us for lunch. And I would have to fast the day before and then like do like a very light iftar that <laughs> night because she would just feed us so much. And the food was delicious, but like it, it reached a point where like I couldn't eat anymore. But she was, you know, like she, she was like, eat, 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 please eat. Like, and, you know, it, it really blew me away. Like, uh, and I make dua for her, like to this day. No, I mean, to this day. you know, even in the, in the Muslim world, of course, I mean, I, I lived in Egypt for, you know, uh, altogether maybe five years and it did not matter uh, the person's uh, level of wealth or standard of living without exception people would all say it's on the house now they didn't mean that right they didn't mean that I you know I made the mistake of actually believing that someone was really telling me it was on the house you know they pulled up they, they let me out at my destination I was in a taxi the taxi driver looked at me and said, it's on the house. And I said, really? <laughs> Subhanallah. And he said, La He said, no, 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 Sheikh, I need money. But what I heard there was not just some insincere, empty words, but the expression of a cultural ideal. Then maybe I don't have the, you know, I don't have the position to be able to, to forego this fair, or I don't even have the, the piety to forego this fair. But as a cultural ideal, generosity is still something that's important to me. Yeah. Even if I'm only feigning generosity, it's still, in, it's, it's a thing that is honorable enough to feign. Yeah. It's honorable enough to fake it. Just like we say in, in my perfect world, you know, like I would do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, and then, my, right. If I could, yeah. this is the kind of person I would be. Mm -hmm. The kind of person that would say, unfortunately, <laughs> I have responsibilities yeah. and, you know, I do this as a, as a means of earning a living and I'm unable to do that. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, a, it's a cultural ideal that I think is something we don't give Muslims enough credit for. Because it's not just wealthy folks. It's across the board, mm -hmm. people that always express a willingness to share what they have, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you have to think how things would change in this country if that was something that we lionized. Yes. We're just being open-handed. Yes. It's not. I mean, we're not like that. That's not our culture. Although I saw some figures that said that the most charitable country in the world is the United States of America. Hmm. That more money is given in charity in the United States than any other place. Hmm. Now, is that because we're also one of the wealthiest countries in the world? Probably. Or, I mean, is that like a per capita <laughs> thing? Or? No, I think they were saying just the amount of money uh, given to charitable causes hmm. in the U.S. tops every other uh, country. Hmm. Right. So, mashallah, I think some, some of those ideals, they do exist, but maybe we just don't see them playing out in the same popular way. Hmm. Right. He continues, as for the obligations of sacred law, they are such things as zakah, supporting one's dependence and rights due to others, and relieving the distressed. Examples of virtuous merit include not nitpicking over trivialities. So the first thing is like supporting your dependents. Um, you know, the, the saying in Arabic is la shukra ala wajib. Person does not have to offer gratitude for that which is an obligation. So technically, one supporting his wife or supporting his children or supporting his parents or supporting his sister or the recipient of, you know, that good favor in those cases I mentioned does not really have to say thank you. Mm -hmm. It's an obligation, but it's good manners to say thank you, right? It's good, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's always good practice to say thank you to anyone who does anything to serve you or to benefit you, right? And it keeps you going. And it, and it, and it, and it keeps you going. Just to know that that gratitude is there. It that, certainly keeps you going. The one that fails to thank people has failed to thank God, right? Um, and then he says, as for virtuous merit, it consists of not nitpicking over trivialities. SubhanAllah. That one is huge for me. That one is huge for me. And I've struggled with that, you know, as a father, as a husband. You know, what I think about is when it becomes clear that you're going to have to, you know, spend some, you know, money on something unforeseen, something you didn't predict. Mm -hmm. Will you do it happily or will you do it while frowning and sighing and exhaling loudly? And that's nitpicking over trivialities where a person is like, what? Oh God, okay. Oh man, here I come. I guess we have to take care of this. And it's like, you have to spend the money anyway. If you did it with uh, a happy, content disposition, it would only mark you as a person of nobility and good character. Mm -hmm. You have to spend the money anyway. Yeah. And, you know, when you do nitpick over trivialities, 
you know, for the person that you're nitpicking with, it really throws the whole relationship into question. Oh, absolutely. Like, right. it, was I on such thin ice with you that like this, this little thing that came up is going to like incur displeasure with you? Like, SubhanAllah. You know, it, it's like, it, if it's really trivial, then let's treat it like it's trivial. But let's get, but, but look, can we keep it real? Can we keep it real? Often that disposition is really a warning or a proviso of sorts. What that disposition is saying is, I'm going to do it this time, but you see the displeasure that this is causing me. Don't ask me again. Mm -hmm. That is what, when you see somebody nitpicking over trivialities, it's saying, okay, I'm gonna do it this time, but I wanna display all of this displeasure. I wanna display all of this frustration so that the next time you need something, I am not the person you ask. Mm -hmm. That's what, I really think subconsciously, that's what we're doing. We wanna show <sighs> how much? Oh my God, man. Here, man. Here, here. Go ahead. All right. I mean, you don't care what happens to me. <laughs> you don't care what happens to me. You want to show that what? Okay, I'm going to do this. But next time, don't ask me. Now, if we understood your being able to give is a source of provision for you. The Prophet said, The upper hand is better than the lower hand. The hand that's giving is better than the hand that's receiving. You would actually, you know, God will help the servant as long as the servant is helping his or her brother or sister. So if you recognize that through giving, you were actually qualifying for God's divine assistance in your affairs. You would not only give, but you would want the person to know, keep giving me opportunities to, to be in the good favor of God. Mm -hmm. Keep giving me opportunities to bring to myself these great spiritual opportunities for blessing, for advancement, for enhancement, etc. And you wouldn't do all of that. Oh, man, I'm going to look out for you this time. But man, bro, really, scroll through the contact list and go past my name next time. <laughs> Don't do this again, bro. But I'm going to look out this, you know. Now, look, now in our, look, I can make all kinds of jokes about this. Because, you know, there's the difference between someone that gives without asking what happened and someone that wants to morally lecture you yeah. before they give you. So like, it's like the woman, she went to the sunk, right? And I think for the purpose of learning in this story, we have to mention she was a bondswoman. She was, a, she was a, an enslaved woman, right? And I mentioned that because through that detail, you recognize she was not someone that the Prophet ﷺ had to care about. She was a seemingly insignificant member of that society. She was someone that if the Prophet ﷺ saw her weeping and walked right past her 
it wouldn't have been a big deal. The entire society had turned its back on her, mm. right? She belonged to the lowest class of people in that society. But when the Prophet heard her weeping, he went to her and asked her, a great sign of his sensitivity, right? We see people in all levels of distress all the time. We're not even prompted to ask what's going on. He went to her and said, Mother Yukik, what has caused you to cry? What has made you cry? Why are you crying? She said, the people that own me, they sent me to the market with two dirhams, and those two dirhams are gone. He just reached into his pocket, gave her two dirhams, with no hesitation. He didn't even ask her, what happened? What did you do? Did you do something irresponsible? What, were you negligent? What, here. See, we don't give in that spirit. When somebody tells us, my rent is due, I'm short. We want to ask, so where did the money go? Mm -hmm. I, I, <laughs> I bet, uh, <laughs> I bet uh, Friday night, the people at the club, I bet they got their money. But you don't have the rent. I bet the weed man, I bet he got his money. But you don't have the rent. New shoes. When, when you get those? Jordan ones. Nice. Decent. But you don't have the rent. See, we want to give somebody a moral lecture. The prophet, so he didn't morally lecture her. What happened? You lost it? Yeah, take it. And that was his last. You see? There's a, there's a, you know, uh, a verse in the Quran, to say something good to someone is better than giving them sadaqah and then following that sadaqah with injury. It's better just to say, Allah yukrimuk, may Allah bless you, rather than give them money and then berate them. SubhanAllah. SubhanAllah. It's better just to say something nice. Nobody wants to be the recipient of charity and then the recipient of abuse with the charity. Like, damn, if I take the money, excuse my language, but man, if I take the money, I got to listen to this? Here, keep it. <laughs> keep it, man. You know, um, subhanAllah. SubhanAllah. You know, I once... I was much younger. I loaned somebody a very small sum of money. And just as a general rule of thumb, they say never loan somebody something that you expect to get back. Now, if they give it back, alhamdulillah. But when loaning, you take for granted that if you never paid me back, I intended it as charity anyway. Mm -hmm. But I didn't know that. So when I gave it, and he told me a day that he was going to pay me back, I called him at noon on that day. I said, I don't want to catch you too early, but I didn't want to catch you too late. <laughs> and I said, so uh, can we square our deal? And he said, you know, uh, Will, my given name is Will, just like yours, mashallah. You know, Will, I ran into some trouble and, um, I'm probably going to need an extension, you know, uh, you know, in order to pay back that, that, that loan. 
man, I hassled that man every two days, man. Every two days, I would pick up the phone, man, what's up with that bread? What's up with that bread? Can I get paid? Can I get paid? What's good, man? Can I get paid? I'll never forget. He gave me the money and he said, I swear, I would rather die. <laughs> I would rather die than be in a position to owe you anything, man. <laughs> and he gave me the money. And it hit me so hard because I realized just how undignified I had been. And I didn't have to be. God had put me in a position where it wasn't going to kill me to be patient with him. But there was something that I, you know, I think I attached his paying me to my self-respect. Mm -hmm. Pay me because I'm worthy of being paid. Don't play with me. It's my money. Give it to me. Not knowing that he was really dealing with a difficult situation. Mm -hmm. And when he said that to me, I apologized profusely. And even now, he ha it's a long pause before he even takes a gift from me. I'm like, I got you something now. <laughs> I'm good, man. I said, no, no, no. Wait, wait. I've come a long way since then, Akhi. I've come a long way since then. This is one of the major, like, sort of reorientations that Islam provided for me. Um, you know, this, this idea that loans are actually a form of charity. Right, like we, you know, we, we we have everything under like you know certain like mental categories, and, and then we just see the world through those categories. Like for me, a loan was always something associated with making money, right? You you earn interest on the loan, or you pay interest on the loan. Uh, in the Sharia, a loan is a form of charity. Qarat Hassan is a form of charity, and it's like how how much easier does a situation like that become just by making that very simple mental shift? Mm -hmm. Don't loan out what you can't afford to just give in charity. And, and when you do loan, like, treat it like it's already maybe, gone. Maybe it comes back, gone. maybe it doesn't. Yeah. He also mentions avoiding this is even more important with respect to a neighbor, a relative, or a wealthy person, or when hosting guests. La ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you haven't. But there's nothing worse than being a guest in someone's home because you have to be. Like, you know, maybe your family has fallen on hard times or uh, maybe you've fallen on hard times and the person hosting you makes you feel like a burden. There's nothing worse than that. And I can remember this. This, by the way, we're about to go into something that's very African-American. Warning. But I can remember that there were like rules. If you had to stay with family, there were rules, things that you just don't do. One of them, don't finish anything. So if you're about to eat cereal and you would get the last of the milk, no cereal that morning. 
Because this will make them feel like you're a burden. If somebody comes down, they're ready to eat cereal, they open the refrigerator, where's the last of the milk? They see the guests eating cereal. Man, I can't wait for your father to get back on his feet, man. Because you all really need to get out of here. Mm. Right? And we experienced that. I mean, I had friends that were very close to me that, you know, it was like, I'm a guest. So the last thing I want is to be the one responsible for using the last of the hot water. Mm-hmm. Don't, like, I would rather bathe in cold water than to be the last, than to be the person that uses the last of the hot water and I'm a guest. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, all of those guidelines just took for granted that the people hosting you were miserly. They were bukhala, they were people of bukhal. Then if they came down and saw some, that the last of the milk had been consumed, that they wouldn't just say, oh, somebody go to the store and get some more milk. Mm-hmm. Or I'll, I'll get something on my way out, no problem. Or man, maybe we need to get, uh, you, know, um, you know, a different hot water heater, a bigger, you know, hot water heater. Or, ah, oh, man, I guess I have to wait until the hot water heater fills back up so I can, I can take my shower. It took for granted that the people hosting you are bukhala. These are people of, of, of miserliness. And it really shouldn't be that way, man. Yeah. I've never experienced that, but. I know you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I did move in with my in-laws. Don't um, say that, Will. No, no, no. no I love out. you. I hear love your out. family. No, don't no, get, no, don't get, get in, trouble in trouble now. Not, this is just no, me. No, you have to go home. <laughs> yeah. no, don't do it. No, don't no, no. I, I lived with my in-laws for two and a half years. And it was a situation where really, you know, could, could we have continued to live by ourselves? Yes. But, you know, really, like, we, we kind of needed to move in. I just graduated. I didn't have a job. I was, like, driving Uber. Right? It was a difficult time. Um, and I remember in, maybe, like, the first week or two, I was in the kitchen. And I was, like, looking in the fridge right for something to eat and my mother-in-law walked in and you know I wasn't really sure what the rules were here and so I said to her hey can I eat this and she walked up and she she closed the fridge door and she said listen to me don't ever ask me if you can eat anything Allah in my Allah. house Allah Allah like, this is all your food okay Allah Allah you better and, be happy. and I, I I just like that that sense of like not knowing about like hot water, like food in the fridge, like, you know, like, I, I don't know, using too much electricity, it all went away. Was never there. In that moment. Was never there. Then, you know, we moved out in May of this year. We're moving out. And at this point, I'm thinking, we've been living together two and a half years. My stuff is their stuff, right? It's all mixed up together, right? Like mm-hmm. my silverware is mixed in with their silverware. Like my rugs are laying out. She was rolling up the rugs that I brought. She was sorting through the silverware and she made sure that we got all of our stuff back. SubhanAllah. And yeah, you know, amazing. amazing. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, I always tell the story about hospitality that I was sitting in Masjid Azhar in Cairo. And there was this one guy, he was like, uh, he was just an interesting dude, man. He would, he would sit, I think his job 
was sitting in Masjid Azhar talking to people who walked by. <laughs> That's what he did every day. Sounds like a great job. That's what he did every day. Now, what was tripped out is that his name was Mahir. I asked him, I said, Ma, I see you in the Masjid sitting here every day. This is Masjid Azhar. I said, how long have you been doing this? He said, about 25, 30 years, right? Now, you know what was deep though? He was so learned, right? Because, I mean, he would, he would you know, he would, uh, I don't know what he did for a living, you know, I mean, but he would, you know, all of the classes and the ruach of the, of the masjid, he would, you know, peek in here, there, 25, 30 years. So he had learned a great deal. He had like the equivalent of a PhD in Islamic studies just being around, hmm. right? And I don't know what he did, but he always had money for tea. You know, he would just be sitting there drinking tea. And so one day we were looking together at the courtyard of the masjid and going to Azhar is really, um, it's almost like a, a miniature version of going to Hajj. That's just students from all over the, the majority mm -hmm. Muslim world study at Azhar. Mm -hmm. And I was just looking around and you see Central Asian students, you see uh, students from the Indian subcontinent, you see lots of students from continental Africa. You see a few students from our East Asia. It's just, it's, you know, lots of students from Indonesia, mm -hmm. uh, from South Asia. I mean, it's, it's, it, and I said to him, I said, SubhanAllah, isn't it amazing how every people excels at something specific? And Mahra said, mm-hmm, that is amazing. <laughs> and I said, look at the Germans, Handasa engineering. And I said, look at the Japanese. Technology. Technology. I said, look at the Americans. Weapons manufacturer. <laughs> Who can beat us at that? You know, in trading in futures and securities. Right? Who, can, <laughs> Who can beat us at that? I said, نحن كالمسلمين ماذا نتفوق في us as Muslims, what do we excel at? He looked at me and he said, <laughs> Drinking tea. Nobody can beat us at that. Then he started laughing. And then he said, Ya Diyafa, hospitality. He said, This is even until the present day, something that Muslims have retained this cultural emphasis upon, like hospitality and hosting. This is something Muslims are still very, very proud of. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, I felt uh, great pride to be a member of this community, mashallah. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a very noble thing for which to be known. Mm -hmm. yeah. Very noble thing for which to be known. He continues, or nitpicking concerning something in which such behavior is inappropriate such as purchasing a burial shroud or a sacrificial animal or purchasing something you intend to donate to the needy. SubhanAllah, that's, that's a big one for me, man. Yeah, yeah, you know, in, in, in terms of our charity, like if we're giving away something other than money, right, it's not to be the best. Like if we're giving a cow, let's mm -hmm. say, it's, it's not to be the best, it's not to be the worst, it should be in the middle, something you'd be happy to accept yourself, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's such a beautiful principle, 
right? And again, like I think it, it sort of runs counter to uh, a lot of our cultural tendencies. But you know, it's it, it, it's something that really, like I think it's like a, a one of those practices that just you implement in little things. It sort of breaks that miserly spirit that you might have. Whenever you give, you, you, you want to give something that you'd like to receive. Whenever, you know, in the case of like something like a burial shroud, right? You want to have like the awareness, like the, I shouldn't be thinking about the things of the world when I buy a burial shroud, you know, like that's a little too ironic, right? Yeah, that, that, that's too much irony. You know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I'm thinking bap, you know what I mean? It's too, too much, too much, that's too much irony. You know, if a person is haggling, over the price of their own casket. Mm-hmm. You've missed the boat. You know, if you're in the funeral home purchasing your own casket and you're like, 7,000, can I, can, I can I get it for five? Come on, man, give me a play here. <laughs> you know, can I get a play? Come on, man. It's like, you're thinking about deals and musawama and haggling this is something that symbolizes your departure from this world and you're still thinking about wheeling and dealing and getting the best price you can and it's just inappropriate it's just inappropriate it's it's and i mean that in the true sense of the word inappropriate like it's not fitting this mokif this setting demands a different kind of composure from you. This is not the place for that. Like there's a place for that. Maybe you go and you're buying perfume or you're buying a car and you're kind of haggling. You're trying to get the best deal possible. But your burial shroud, your casket, more, you know, there's a soberness that this should like, there's a soberness that should come over you because of the reality that exists in what you're doing. And a person that's like, come on, man, what do you normally sell these for? Okay, that, that one's made out of oak. Do you got something made out of plastic? Because I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to pay seven, man. Come with something a little cheaper, man. It's, it's like, I mean, that, are you a, for real? You know, funerals do bankrupt people in this country they do um one of the things i really appreciated about islam when i first learned about this is that you know the uh you're buried in a burial shroud and at most a very simple casket mm-hmm. very very simple casket mm-hmm. compared to what you see people oh, they can get quite extravagant houses. yeah um so i mean it, within that framework it right, makes sense haggling doesn't make sense at all right you're you're oh, sure you're buying something that's very simple in the first place right and, you know, that in itself is to remind you, like, you, there's no extravagance in the grave, right? Um, but, but the way we bury some people now, you might be led to believe, yeah, you bury them like we bury, bury, bury the pharaohs, like back in the day. There is some extravagance there. Sure. Um, I think sure. there's a little bit of a cultural subtlety. You know, that's the, that's the interesting thing about mm-hmm. reading this book, is, is you see the ways in which um, our culture now uh, like we really have to think through some of these things in a different way. Like he he mentions in the the section on the cure, like one of the cures for miserliness is is realizing that people who have a lot of money spend their entire lives working very hard to get all that money. Mm-hmm. And I thought, man, to 
to think that in 2021, the United States of America, all the really wealthy people out there had worked so hard to get all that money. Uh, you know, yeah. some of the, they just owned equity, right? No, well, 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 I've heard it explained differently. That when you see somebody enjoying great wealth, remember that someone's lifetime was spent mm. accumulating that money. It might not be the person that's spending it. Mm. It might be a relative of theirs, or it might be an employee of a relative of theirs. It might mm -hmm. be employees of relatives of theirs, mm -hmm. but someone spent a lifetime generating that money mm -hmm. that the person is spending. Um, and that uh, reality, um, it, 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 uh, um, it produces a, um, a kind of contentment mm -hmm. because for all of the value that we place on money and wealth in dunya, do, are you ready to spend your lifetime accumulating it? Right? Yeah. Because I mean, I mean, we're only given a finite amount of time in this world. And if given the choice between focusing on that or focusing on something that will benefit you when you meet Allah, you might gain much more benefit focusing on something that will benefit you when you meet Allah. Mm -hmm. You know, Allah. How we doing? We got maybe five more minutes, inshallah. Okay. Let's see if we can finish. He says, thus, one who makes matters difficult, for one whose rights clearly render this inappropriate to do so, such as a neighbor, has indeed torn away the veils of dignity. This is as the majestic and guiding sages have stated. Thus, this is comparable to one who fulfills his obligations without good cheer or spins from the least of what he possesses. Its root is love of this world for its own sake or so that the self can acquire some of its fleeting pleasures. Mm -hmm. yeah. So he's saying just, don't make it difficult for people that have rights upon you to access those rights, right? It's like, um, I'll never forget. I, my, one of my best friends, we were kids. He worked in the barbershop. Sweeping up hair. He would come in, end of the day, sweep up the hair in the shop, and each of the barbers would pay him for you know, cleaning up their stall. And uh, it was kind of like a, uh, an understanding that they had. When he would come in, he, wouldn't, like, he didn't need to ask every week, like, should I clean up your station? He just cleaned it up. And then at the end of the uh, the work day, they would all reach down, and it was, and it wasn't like a set amount. Sometimes, I mean, days that they did better, they would give him more. Days that they did, you know, uh, worse, I guess they would give him less. But one day after he, you know, he had cleaned up, and this was a particularly busy day because it was during the holidays, so everybody wants to have a haircut. Mm -hmm. It just, I mean, when we walked into the barbershop, it was like hair everywhere, and he cleaned it up with ihsan. You couldn't find a a single strand of hair when he finished cleaning the shop. And one guy was agitated about something. 
And he almost acted as if he was going to walk out without paying him. And me and my friend both said, yo, you know, like, he reached into his pocket, peeled off a few dollars and threw it on the floor. Hmm. Walked out the shop. And when here Imam Maulud is talking about stripping off the veils of dignity, I'll never forget thinking to myself, that guy's a slime ball. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's a creep. And I never respected him after that. Mm -hmm. I would see him in the community. I never respected him. This man came in, he worked. You're obligated to give him something and you made it difficult. You threw his money on it. He was a kid and you were a man and you threw his money on the floor. You jerk. That, I mean, I, you know, when Imam Shafi'i talks about righteous indignation, mm -hmm. we would just, we would just, you know, peewees, pipsqueaks. But I felt angry enough. I wanted to put my hands on him. I wanted to grab him, put him on the ground. No, pick my man money up and put it in his hand. It, that's how angry I like. That was one of the angriest days of my childhood. He peeled my man's money off and threw it on the floor. And I just remember thinking, you have no dignity. You have no self-respect. You threw this man. He get, and he paid him and he, and he lowballed him. He paid him a low amount and he threw it on the ground. And we never forgot that. Even now, if I call him, this is, this is like 26, 27 years ago, man. He'll still say, remember when he played me like that? <laughs> <laughs> remember, we, we wanted to put our hands on that guy for throwing my money on the ground like that, right? That's what he's talking about. You strip away the, the like you, you have no dignity when you make it difficult for someone that you owe to access what they owe, what, what, what they're owed. It's like, what, what kind of person does that, right? A person does a service for you and you pay them begrudgingly? And, and that should be like enough to stop anyone from ever doing anything like that. Like how many things do we have in our lives that like we think back on and, we're, and we're, we just cringe. Like, man, it was I, so I, embarrassing. I, I, I tried to like talk to this girl and like I embarrassed my, and, and you, you really think about it and it's like, man, I'm probably the only one who remembers that, right? Just like little things that like are embarrassing to you, but probably are were in, so insignificant to everyone else that like they don't remember them, right? We trip up over those things but you slip up like that once, you look stingy once, or, or you do something that is actually undignified in front of a crowd of people once, and they will remember you by that. Yeah. And, and that should be enough mm -hmm. to give you pause from, from mm -hmm. ever acting in that sort of manner. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And again, the opposite side of that coin is you show great generosity, people will remember that too. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he ends by saying the root cause is love of this world, shubh mm -hmm. dunya. You know, you love, you know, uh, Allah Ta'ala says, shubh and jannah, you know, uh, like a, almost a violent love mm -hmm. of this world. And I don't, you know, I mean, when you, when you hear the expression shubh dunya or love of the world, 
What comes to mind for you? Because I, you know, I get a lot of different impressions. But what, what do you think about? You know, I, th I think we actually talked about this the last time I was up here with you, and I said something that I is, you know, my point of view. I actually didn't realize it would be controversial, uh, so I'm going to say it again. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I, I said, you know, for me, like. Um, actually going out and getting the things that you want in this world is the best cure for the love of the world because mm -hmm. you realize how fleeting that pleasure is once you actually get them. That's real. Right. And by That's the way, and I think the reason I call it heat for this, like people message me in private. I'm not talking about anything haram. I'm not saying like go out and like do things that Allah commands you not to do. I'm saying, no, like get those things that are perfectly halal, but it's still the dunya right? Mm -hmm. It's still ultimately going to be unfulfilling. Like, go get them. Like, get a taste. See oh, how you yeah. like it. Mm -hmm. And see how quickly, like, you stop caring about it. And I, if that doesn't cure you, then, you know, uh, nothing probably will. But, like, it, I, I like the way he puts it. It's fleeting. Mm -hmm. As soon as you grasp it, it's gone. I always tell people that the people in my experience, some of the people that are most obsessed with the dunya are people that feel as though they lack what they want in dunya. And they fetishize the dunya. They believe that it has magical powers. That if I have a home in this zip code, my life is gonna be okay. Once I get this car, everything will be okay. If I, if I buy this watch, if I'm vacationing in these places, everything is cool after that. And it's only through actually maybe accessing some of those things that you see. These things, they are made to be unsatisfying. They are made to be unfulfilling. You know, the great English uh, literateur, uh, C.S. Lewis, and lay theologian, you know, one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes, he said, for everything that I feel I need in this world, there's a way of satisfying that need. If I get hungry, there's food. If I get thirsty, there's drink. If I find within myself a need that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only thing I can conclude is that I was not made for this world. Mm -hmm. Right? I wasn't made for this world. And when you access some of those fleeting things and you feel like, okay, no matter how good the food is, I'm going to be hungry after that. No matter how exciting an experience is, I'll long for other experiences. No matter how rapturous a sexual experience is, I'll feel desire after that. You come to recognize this dunya is not a place where desire ends. It just goes and goes and goes and goes until you end. Mm -hmm. yeah. I heard someone say once that uh, saints swim in the same ocean that the damned drown in. Subhanallah. And I, I think you, you see it with this example. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it leads you to damnation to experience how fleeting the dunya is and yet continue to chase it. Mm. 
But if you see how fleeting it is and you realize, hey, I have desires that actually extend beyond this world, well, that takes you to Allah. And then you Allah swim. Akbar. Yeah. Allah Akbar. Allah Akbar. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, I think you have to, um, you know, just, just echoing that point, you have to see that God says, is it not with the remembrance of God that hearts find rest? And sometimes it takes some, some trial and error to recognize that nothing else will give my heart rest. No material possession, certainly not fentanyl or heroin or cocaine or marijuana or sex or money uh, none of those gave my heart rest i still wanted but with the remembrance of god the heart can actually be in a state of stillness and repose that this is what i was created to do i have finally arrived at my purpose and i just want to deepen my connection to that purpose deepen my understanding of that purpose. And my heart is at rest. And that's really what Islam is all about, man. MashaAllah. MashaAllah. It's a good place to end. Subhan Rabbi Rabbil Izzati Amma Yasifun Wassalamun Al-Mursaleen Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Thank you for tuning in. Please consider becoming a monthly sustainer by joining 1,000 Hearts of Ta'lif and committing to give $3 a day to keep this work coming to seekers, youth, and newcomers to Islam. Sign up today at www.ta'leefcollective.org forward slash donate. We hope you enjoyed the variety of sessions available and hope you benefit immensely. Allah bless you and Allah bless your loved ones.